Welcome to Indie Matters, the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode, we go over the results from the primary election here in Nevada. Who won, who lost, what surprised us, and more with a slew of indie reporters. After that, historian Alicia Barber and reporter Tabitha Mueller discuss the history of rent control in Reno and how it relates to present-day housing affordability issues. At the end of the show, I sit down with Jeff Scott from Washoe County Libraries to talk about some good books to read this summer. I am here with my wonderful co-host Jacob Solis, assistant editor Michelle Rendells, and her husband, assistant editor Riley Snyder, and we are talking about the the results of the primary election. I'm sure you've seen a lot of news about it, and so we're going to cover, you know, a broad overview of the turnout, the winners and losers, some surprising things that we saw. So, uh, Michelle, I'll start with you. What was the the voter turnout? What did we see? Uh, you know, who came to vote? We're still analyzing all the results that have come in. There are a few straggler ballots that we're going to have to add into the count. That includes ones that there was a signature mismatch on, and they need to be what's called cured by the voters. The voter needs to respond and follow up and fix that. So, so there's some votes that are maybe outstanding. We'll still have a few results trickling in. But it looks like we're at about 25% turnout. That's not unusual for a primary and a midterm to have that low of turnout. We're looking at usually 23-24% of voters, sometimes even less. I think the 2014 election may have had a 19% turnout in this uh, primary. The other thing that's at play is that we have a lot more voters now. We have a lot more people that are registered thanks to things like automatic voter registration that are capturing hundreds of thousands more people than in the past. It it is very interesting to see that in spite of the great growth of nonpartisans that we've had, uh, still dominated by Republicans and Democrats turning out. It's a, a huge difference. Way more people that are registered with a major party are turning out, even though, say, a third of Nevadans are registered as nonpartisan. And I think that's partly just a factor of it's a boring election if you're a registered nonpartisan. You're going to get to vote in your county board of supervisors and your city council and your school board, but you don't get to weigh in on the, the fun Republican governor primary or Senate primary. Now, another thing to keep in mind is in general elections, we're going to see a lot more interest. And certainly in presidential elections, you're going to see a lot more interest. So we did hit numbers of about 77% turnout in the 2020 general election when Trump and Biden were going head to head. So three times the turnout when, when you hit a general election and when it's a presidential year. Yeah. Speaking of a nonpartisan, I, I, I am a registered nonpartisan and I, I live just outside of the Reno city limits. I had one person on my ballot, <laughs> so it was very a very small ballot. So from there, we will jump into winners and losers. Riley, do we want to start with you uh, chatting about the big wins and losses that you saw during the election? Yeah, so I would say the winners are probably the people that got more votes and the losers are the people that didn't get enough votes. But in all seriousness, I think a lot of what we saw on Tuesday was clear that there wasn't like a lot of really tight races in terms of sort of the top of the ticket primary contest. Almost every race was called within like an hour of the first results coming out. I think the only one that wasn't called was the Congressional District 4 Republican primary, which was won by Sam Peters over Annie Black, the Assemblywoman. So yeah, I would say it was overall like a big win for Joe Lombardo just based off 
how much negative attention has been placed on him by his Republican primary opponents and by Democrats who've been trying to punch him down as much as possible before the primary. So he did very well. I think he benefited from just a very large field and from strong support in Clark County. And the fact he wasn't blown out in rural counties, I think, did his campaign a lot of benefits in that there was no like one candidate that rural counties or other Republicans throughout the state outside of Clark County were able to rally around. It was sort of a three-way split between him, Joey Gilbert, and Dean Heller, who was also running for governor. So he definitely did pretty well on election night. Jacob, why don't we talk a little bit about the Senate races that you were following? Yeah, so I think that ahead of Tuesday, there was a lot of attention put on the Republican primary and how competitive it was going to be because everyone was surprised that Sam Brown, who was a political nobody coming into Nevada, coming into this election, he had just moved to the state a couple years prior, and he emerges last year as a serious contender based sort of off this fundraising run he puts together for basically a year off of social media and Fox News appearances, essentially. And so coming into Tuesday, I think there was a lot of attention over whether or not Adam Laxalt, who was the sort of heir apparent to the nomination, he's obviously been around Republican politics in Nevada for certainly the last decade. Since 2020, when he was the co-chair of the Trump campaign and sort of made the rounds, denying the election at the time and, and saying that there were illegal votes in Nevada, he has been Trump's guy in Nevada. So therefore, he was the Republican establishment's guy in Nevada and all expectations were that he was going to win. And frankly, that's what happened. The National Republican Party, Trump, his personal friend, Ron DeSantis, who is probably the most popular Republican not named Donald Trump in the country right now. And all of that, I think, sort of pushed Laxalt comfortably over the edge. It wasn't close, and the margin is actually wider than what we were expecting at the end of the day. Yeah, and I also wanted to get your guys' opinion just on the, I think both within the Republicans and the Democrats, there's been a bit of a, a schism when looking at the the Republicans. There's the Trump wing of the party and then the more moderate wing of the party. Where were the, 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 the lines drawn there within the primaries for, let's start with Republicans, then we can go to the Democrats. So to start with, primaries generally favor candidates who have more partisan positions. The person who shows up for a partisan primary is usually someone who's more politically active and therefore has more opinions about what someone ought to be doing. A lot of the Republicans we saw were more conservative. I think there were very few moderates, maybe the one exception being Joe Lombardo. But even Joe Lombardo has been endorsed by Trump, right? Like so, and I, and I don't think that should be discounted. That it really is the Trump wing of the party that had success in Nevada. There was the one exception where Carolina Serrano was a Trump-backed candidate. She worked for the Trump campaign in 2020. She's been campaigning with Adam Laxalt and alongside people like Ron DeSantis. You know, she's a smaller profile candidate. She did lose in Las Vegas. I do think that the governor's race was interesting in this aspect. Of course, the obvious being that Joe Lombardo got the Trump endorsement and won, so you can say a Trump candidate won, but he was not nearly as out front about his support for Trump that folks like Joey Gilbert or Dean Heller were. And I mean, when Trump decided to weigh in on the race, when it was pretty clear already that Lombardo was the front runner. People like Dean Heller were pretty baffled and upset that all that they had done to express their love for Trump seemed to not translate into an endorsement for them. You know, and, and Lombardo's more moderate on certain gun issues. And Lombardo is not going to go out on a limb as far on abortion as folks like Dean Heller goes. And so there's certain things that the other candidates were a lot more out front and far right 
than Joe Lombardo was. But I think the Trump endorsement helped him. I think you can't underestimate the importance of being a sheriff in a Republican primary and the image that sends. And of course, Lombardo had a major fundraising advantage that he had acquired over time. So I think all of those factors help push him over the edge, even though he's not shouting from the rooftops, make America great again. And we've been talking a lot about Republicans. And the reason is primaries, a lot of the incumbents right now in the state are Democrats. They're probably going to get the, the nomination for their party in that race. There were a couple exceptions. The first one that really comes to mind was Dina Titus in Congressional District 1 going up against Amy Valella. Yeah, in that race, we did expect it to be a little closer than it was. I think we ended up somewhere like Amy Valella got 15% or less and Dina Titus won by an overwhelming margin in spite of Amy Valella coming in late with a, an endorsement from Bernie Sanders. And Amy was a co-chair of Bernie Sanders' 2020 caucus campaign. He won Nevada, and she was part of that. But I, I think there's maybe a difference where maybe Nevada Democrats are not that far left. <laughs> and I think you're getting a lot of the folks that are, are definitely more of the moderate Democrat and definitely want to go with the known quantity Dina Titus rather than just like tear it all down and start over with Amy Valella. So even though I think Titus did run scared a bit with Amy Valella running a viable campaign to her left, in the end, it was really a blowout more so than we had expected. So then zooming back in from those federal races to some of those state races, who, uh, how, how did those turn out? Well, in one local race that I think still to the point of this sort of democratic schism between left and center, lawyer Ozzy Fumo was running a campaign against Clark County District Attorney Steve Wolfson, who's been a uh, district attorney for quite a while. But Wolfson, you talk about Democrats who have embraced this sort of restorative justice message, who have sort of backed away from criminal punishments and the use of jails and prisons and extended sentencing. Wolfson has not embraced, and Ozzy Fumo has been very critical of that. But there was a real divide between resources. Wolfson had all the money, all the airtime, all the mailers, everything. And I think that reflected the final result where Fumo just couldn't compete. And Wolfson is basically going to cruise, we expect, based on sort of the constituencies who vote in a district attorney race. But we expect that Wolfson will win in November based on this primary. So sort of in other statewide races, which includes sort of attorney general, secretary of state, treasurer, controller, and lieutenant governor, we, for the most part, saw like the further right candidates win or those that have been in for a longer period of time. So for example, in the attorney general's race in the Republican side, Sigal Chata, who is an attorney who led the charge against occupancy limits for churches during the COVID shutdown and a very a variety of other right wing causes. I was able to win that primary against Tisha Black, who was a attorney who was a little bit more moderate. So we saw sort of those candidates do very well on primary election night. Yeah, on the Secretary of State's race in particular, I think there's been a lot of interest in Secretaries of States across the country because a lot of them are in charge of election administration. That's the case in Nevada. And the current Republican Secretary of State, Barbara Sagaski, is termed out. And the people who are vying to replace her are led by Jim Marchant, who won his primary. He used to be a legislator, a state legislator, an assemblyman. And then he ran for Congress in 2020 and lost. And 
since he's lost that election, he's become very vocal as a sort of election conspiracy embracer and an election denier. He has basically said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but that elections haven't been real for about the last 10, 15 years, and that no one, no one vote has actually mattered. He has sort of embraced conspiracy theories about Dominion voting machines and that they can be hacked. He's actually gone on a sort of quasi-whistle-stop tour through rural counties in Nevada, uh, trying to convince uh, local government boards to abandon those Dominion machines and switch to hand-counting paper ballots, uh, which has actually worked in a couple counties, including Nye County. So Jim Marchant is, when you talk about the most radical changes that the Republican Party wants to make to election administration, Jim Marchant is emblematic of a lot of that discussion. He's been embraced by people like the MyPillow CEO, Mike Lindell, who has hosted symposiums on how the election was stolen in 2020. Jim Marchant, has, he has not embraced QAnon specifically, but he is sort of in that adjacent sphere of these sort of very serious conspiracy theories about the 2020 election. And I think that he's going to be running against a Democrat who had no competition and therefore was not on the ballot, Cisco Aguilar, who was a former Nevada athletic commissioner. Aguilar is going to have a lot of money. He already has a lot of money relative to everyone else for a secretary of state's race. But Marchant is going to, I think, get the kind of support from Republicans who do not trust the system and who want that sort of radical change. And Marchant has name recognition as someone who ran for Congress, and he's going to get money as well. So speaking of some of those other things to watch moving into the November general election, what's kind of on your guys' radar right now as reporters that we'll be paying attention to as we're several months out now from from the November election? Well, I would say that you haven't seen anything yet, and it's going to be very bloody out there. Just reading some of Jacob's stuff about the day after the, the election was over, ads start pouring in from the Senate race and the fight over who's responsible for gas prices just rages. I think the governor has been just doing his own official duties through this sleepy primary that he's had. He he had basically no serious competition. But now it's a fight for his life. And there's a lot at stake. There's switching from a Democrat to a Republican governor in the governor's office has wide-ranging implications for taxes and what we're going to see in the legislature. I mean, it's possible if Lombardo was elected that he would be a more moderate Republican and maybe would take Steve Sislak's budget and not do do anything too crazy with it. But, I mean, this means so much for things that can get vetoed. This means so much for the possibility of taxes, new taxes in the Senate. It is literally control of the United States Senate People are just going to be zeroed in on Nevada. I think you're going to see some really aggressive ads. It's a real fight for survival, and both parties think they have a chance. Yeah, that's right. So uh, have fun looking out for those ads inundating you on your television or internet browsers. And in the meantime, we will be paying attention to all of those and keeping you up to date on on the latest. We'll have an election tracker on our website. Also, another podcast we collaborate with, CityCast Las Vegas, featured our own Michelle Rendell's recently talking about the results of the election. So you can also go over there and check out more if you want to hear more about the election. Riley, Michelle, Jacob, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, Jacob, we went over quite a lot there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. A bit of a broad overview. Um, but if you'd like to find more specifics, you can find all of our stories on our website. Yeah, so we are actually going to dive into one topic. It's a little bit more specific now that we've gone over all the results from the primary election. 
Yeah, that's right. So Alicia Barber is a historian up in your neck of the woods, Joey. That's Reno for anyone keeping track at home. (laughs) And she sat down with you and reporter Tabitha Mueller to talk about uh, rent control. Yeah, specifically the history of rent control here in Reno, a subject that has an interesting past, especially as officials consider it as a possible solution to the rising cost of living up here in the north. Since 2020, rental prices have grown by double digits in both the northern and southern parts of the state. Home prices have also hit all-time highs in recent months. As housing prices increase, so too have calls for rent control. In mid-May, the Culinary Union launched a ballot initiative to limit rent increases in North Las Vegas, marking one of the most concrete steps in decades toward capping housing prices. The union is gathering signatures to qualify the measure, and voters could see it on the ballot as soon as the November general election. A recent Nevada independent poll shows voters are warming up to the idea. About 65% of respondents say they support rent control. But this is not the first time the topic of rent control has popped up in Nevada. To understand what happened the first time rent control became a topic of conversation in the Silver State almost 50 years ago, we sat down with historian and writer Dr. Alicia Barber. Back in the 1970s, when the Reno Sparks area was just going through this tremendous period of growth. And that was largely due to the expansion of the gaming industry. There was so much growth happening at that time, motivated by a great interest in trying to remain competitive in the gaming market. Las Vegas was stratospherically expanding its gaming. Atlantic City was legislating gaming, which was a very big deal. So there was great interest in Reno of remaining competitive and keeping growth going. And so what that meant was just a series of um, approvals of really huge projects. And that in turn was bringing thousands and thousands of new workers into town. And there just was not enough housing to accommodate them. So there was a major housing shortage happening in the Reno Sparks area in in the late 1970s. And you started to see a lot of calls for rent control because there was such scarcity that some landlords were really jacking up their prices because they could. Barber dug up some newspaper articles discussing what was happening at the time. Similar to today, Reno was facing a housing shortage and was also experiencing high living costs. But she said the price hikes were mainly taking place in mobile home parks. The focus at least in Reno at that time, was on mobile home parks because there actually weren't a lot of apartment buildings in the area. And so a lot of these workers who were coming in and also just the existing working class, a lot of retirees were living in mobile home parks. I looked in the in the city directory for 1980 and there was something like 74, 75 mobile home parks. That was really where a lot of people were relying upon a place to live. And so landlords were just jacking up the prices for renting these spaces in their mobile home parks. And an association actually formed of citizens specifically to try to combat that. And they went to Reno City Council and eventually the state legislature to try to get some help. One of the main founders of the association was Barbara Bennett. She eventually ran for mayor as a grassroots candidate who represented the working class people. Barber explained Bennett made a significant contribution to the lives of Reno citizens in almost every sector. Barbara Bennett was Reno's first female mayor. She was elected in 1979, but she and she moved here to Reno in 1964, I think, from Sacramento. She worked for the telephone company. She was a family person. She was working class and 
she really started to get involved in a lot of community issues tackling discrimination, age discrimination, housing injustice, sex discrimination. And she actually moved into a mobile home. She lived in a trailer park and she was experiencing this herself. So she actually was pivotal in the foundation of an association for mobile home owners. It was called the Nevada Mobile Homeowners Association. And they went to lobby the Reno City Council they weren't focused specifically on rent control. They were focused on rent justification, which was a term I hadn't really heard before, but it was sort of with the knowledge that landlords are going to raise your rent when they need to. When their own expenses go up, it makes sense. If their taxes go up, they really need to raise the rents for their tenants. And that makes sense. But if their taxes are not going up or if they're not going up to the extent that they're raising it, they needed to justify. It was literally about justifying that raise in rents. And so they were trying to get a city ordinance in 1978 to to pass something on the city level that would be a rent justification ordinance. Barber said that a lot of questions surrounded the ordinance, and it wasn't clear if the city had the authority to pass it. They tried to get an advisory opinion from the courts in advance of an ordinance just to see if this was possible. Was it constitutional to do this? Because there, there was, as today, a lot of question about where does the authority lie for rent control or rent justification? Is it on the local level or is it on the state level? It's still unclear today who has authority to implement a rent control or rent justification measure. Nevada is known as a Dillon's rule state, meaning that the state needs to grant local governments the explicit ability to pass laws such as rent control. In 2015, the legislature modified Dillon's rule delegating to counties the authority to address matters of local concern. Based on the 2015 change made to state law, a county-level government in theory has the power to implement rent stabilization efforts, though no public legal opinion or memorandum exists on the topic. There's a consensus that no one wants to be the first to implement such a policy because they could open themselves up to lawsuits, especially as housing industry professionals remain opposed to the idea emphasizing that government should focus on increasing supply instead of closing off options for landlords. Answers did not come in 1979 either. So in 1979, this group took that request for a rent justification ordinance to city council, but they didn't pass it. So they had to actually go to other means and they, and they went to the state. As workers came into Reno, many of them were not high income and struggled to find a place to live. These people who were coming in to work with these casinos, these new casinos that had all these new hotel rooms, thousands and thousands of hotel rooms. So these people were maids. They were bartenders. They were really low income workers and there wasn't a place for them to live. Ultimately, in the 1970s and 80s, lawmakers sidestepped the hard jurisdictional questions surrounding rent stabilization, recommending instead the increase of mobile home spaces and removing the need for government intervention. One way or another, we'll be watching to see how governments in Nevada approach the rent control question this time around. The story was reported and produced by Tabitha Mueller, with editing help from me, Joey Lovato. If you'd like to read more about housing, you can find more of Tabitha's reporting on our website, thenevadaindependent.com. Well, we now go from rent control and voting to a place where people go to vote, the library, Joey. Specifically, the downtown Reno Library, where I sat down with the director of the Washoe County Library System, Jeff Scott, 
who talks to me about some good books to read this summer while you're on vacation or by the pool or just looking for a good thing to read. Yeah, but before we get to Jeff's recommendations, uh, we're going to recommend things because we're the hosts of this podcast and we can do whatever we want. <laughs> That's right. And you and I are both big readers. So, uh, Jacob, why don't we start with you? What are some books that you're reading right now that you'd recommend to the audience? So I'm a big John Le Carre fan, and this month I'm reading The Tailor of Panama. Um, but if you're going to read any of his books, I definitely recommend The Spy Who Came In From the Cold. Just a mm, chef's kiss of a spy novel. And I am currently reading Cecil Liu's uh, space trilogy, space opera. Uh, it's called A Remembrance of Earth's Past. So the first book is called The Three-Body Problem. I just finished that one. I am now on to the second book called The Dark Forest. It's a Chinese author. It's a translation. It's definitely a different um, you know, writing style than what I'm used to, but it's, it's a lovely book. I absolutely adore it. And I also wanted to quickly recommend A Swim in the Pond in the Rain by George Saunders. It's an exploration of Russian short stories and what makes writing so engaging and unique. So check those two out. If you're uh, not one for words and like pictures, a graphic novel that I recommend is East of West by Jonathan Hickman. It's a future dystopian Western. Just, you know, just look it up. It's just a hoot. Just a hoot. And with that, we will jump into my interview with Jeff Scott. All right, well, I'm here with Jeff Scott, the library director here at Washoe County. And today we are talking about some books, exciting books that are coming up this summer that you could check out and potentially read if you were interested in them. Thanks for having me on the show. There's nothing more palate cleansing than reading a good book over the weekend, help you recharge and, and get things going. We just launched our, our summer reading program, Oceans of Possibilities. So that started on June 1st, that runs to July 31st. So if you're a big reader, bring your kids in, you sign up for the summer reading program, you get a free book. Before we start talking about those books, I actually just wanted to chat about something that you pointed out while we yeah. were walking up to your office, which is that this is also a voting place like two days ago, three days ago. Right. No, I love I love the downtown Reno library and the community really loves it. And it's a very photogenic library. And so we renovated the children's area in uh, 2019. And it's also the same space they use for voting. So every every two years, we always get really great coverage from the local paper and the national news because they'll take pictures of people voting and then the libraries in the background. And I always think there's nothing more like American than like voting in a library, democracy in a library. That's always just really exciting. So. So let's, so let's jump into some of these book recommendations for the summer. I don't know if you have a place that you wanted to start. Well, you know, we'll just talk about a few books. One was Siren Queen by uh, Nevo. She wrote a book last year, Chosen and the Beautiful, which was a riff on Great Gatsby. Since Great Gatsby is out of copyright, anyone can write whatever they want now. So she wrote her character of the, of the golfer, Josephine Baker, and getting things from her perspective. She's also made her Asian and have interesting cultural backgrounds. There's a lot of like magical realism to it as well with a really twist kind of ending to it. She, she has a new book out called Siren Queen, and so that takes place early 20th century with the Hollywood business. Luli is a young woman trying to trying to make it in the world. She helps her mom at the laundromat. She goes to the movies a lot. And then she gets introduced to someone who's going to be making movies. She gets on the set. And then when she gets on the set, she gets a little bit part to be, you know, an extra. She does like one little scene. But when she gets into that scene and she's on the camera in that scene, it's like she's transported into that scene. And so it talks a lot about how hard it is to, to women at the time to really become stars. And she's also a uh, Chinese descent. So it's hard to have someone who's who's other than white making it in the, in the Hollywood business. She's has a little twist in it because it has those magical realism aspects that she had in the previous book she wrote. So it's a quick read. It's very fun. I enjoyed reading it. So, you know, I recommend that. So Siren Queen by Nebo. There's one coming out this summer by Sylvia Marina Garcia. So she does, she does fantasy and again, more magical realism 
called The Daughter of Dr. Moreau. So if you're familiar with H.G. Wells, the island of Dr. Moreau, the person who's experimenting with animals and people and merging them together. So it's the daughter's perspective, like how to deal with that legacy and moving forward from that and having our own characteristics with that. So that's, that's an interesting one. So if you're familiar with the book Election by Tom Parada, who's made into a movie with Reese Witherspoon. So she has a, he has a new book out called, it's a sequel to that called Tracy Flick Can't Win. So we're follow the, the main character from election, Tracy, who's now an assistant principal at a school. And so when the principal suddenly retires, she has an opportunity to, to rise into being to the principal. And so the same elements of election where she thinks she's a shoo-in, she's assistant, she's hardworking, she's here every day. And then, oh, there's other things that fall in the way that may jeopardize that. So it's her struggle to get through that to see if she can become the principal and get the things that she wants. It has a lot of touches on the themes of the Me Too movement. And then just women trying to get positions of power and how those obstacles still pop up every once and again. I was curious if you had any nonfiction books. That would be a good read. Yeah, so we have a couple books coming out in June. One is An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us by Ed Yong. So Ed Young is an Atlantic writer, talks about nature. And so it's a good perspective on what animals sees. I think as we're looking at climate change, we look about how humans are very adaptable to those things, but are, are animals adaptable? Now there's less resources. How does that impact things? How does it impact animal life, plant life, all these things that we don't see every day because we go to the grocery store and we get stuff to make a sandwich and that's no problem. How animals are impacted by environment, how they can sense earthquakes, how they can sense these things that are going on that we have kind of forgotten over time. So it's a kind of cool book that's coming out and that's coming out mid-June. And then there's a book coming out called Tree Thieves, Crime and Survival in North America's Woods. That's by Lindsay Morgan. And that talks about tree thievery, people going in and trying to get old wood and cutting it out, illegal logging, that kind of thing. So again, as, as resources become more scarce, people try to take advantage of these situations. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Michelle Rendells, Riley Snyder, Alicia Barber, Tabitha Mueller, and Jeff Scott for being on the show this week. This show is produced and edited by Joey, with additional editing help from Jackie Valley, Michelle Rendells, and Riley Snyder. If you want to support the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen, and also email us with questions, comments, concerns, best tomato varieties to start growing late in the season, or whatever else is on your mind. Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Storyblocks and original music from Joey. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.